G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We're back with another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles, tackles, goes for the legs, your questions about the biblical giants. Yeah, it's good to be back and even better to be moving into a new text for our study. Yeah, that last uh, reading last week was pretty, pretty huge. Uh, And it just really just goes to show that if you're prepared to take the time, you can find so much richness in the Bible. So on that topic, what are we reading today, Tim? Uh, Today we're reading Genesis 3 verse 6. So here it is. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So in the last two episodes, we discussed the conversation that takes place between the woman and the serpent, and we saw how the Nahash or serpent, was able to take the woman's resentment at being prohibited from this one thing and intensify it by telling her what she's missing out on. We went into a second episode on that because I really wanted to emphasise and clarify the situation of the humans in the garden and show that it wasn't a case of perfect mankind being destroyed by sin. Instead, we saw that human nature, the proclivity to be self-centred, is a trait we've always had that we have to overcome in order to live up to the status that God gave us at creation. This is why you have Jesus saying things like, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's Luke 9.23. Since last season, we've been talking about how God chose an ordinary person and gave him a purpose and a function, and then we developed that to show how it tells us that mankind was never morally perfect, which means that the search for the ideal human condition is not satisfied in returning to a prior situation before the fall of man, but in eschatology, which means looking forward to some means of redemption. But for today... What we're chiefly concerned with is the actual moment that the deed is done and what the author has to tell us in that moment. By the way, did you notice that I've now managed to use the word proclivity for three consecutive episodes? Uh, that is a very impressive, but I would be uh, more impressed if you can use it outside of the podcast, like just in the kitchen or talking to your children. Oh, it happens. <laughs> yep, it, it, it definitely happens. I go there. Anyway, we're going to have to dive into the Bible a bit today because we're looking for a narrative pattern that the author is using to convey his message. I'm going to start us off with a story from Genesis 38. And you might be familiar with this one. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. I won't read the whole thing, but we're going to start with just the first half dozen verses of chapter 38, which is the beginning of a story about a whole lot of bad things. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hirah. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay, a lot of uh, names and people being born, but uh, what's actually going on in this passage here? Mm, Okay, so to tell us a bit more of the story, we have a situation where 
Judah meets this Canaanite woman. He has children by her. These children turn out to be bad guys. And when Judah selects a wife for his firstborn, his son does the wrong thing by her and denying her any children. And then he dies. In that culture, it's customary for the brother of the dead man to marry the widow. So this begins a succession of Judah's sons marrying this girl, Tamar, only to dishonor her and end up dead. There's a lot more to the story, of course, and as we know, Judah ends up mistaking his widowed daughter-in-law for a cult prostitute and ends up having to marry her to avoid disgracing himself further. What a miserable story that is. Uh, There are literally like no good people and nothing good happens. Well, that may be true, but we learn some important lessons from it, and we find out later, of course, that this is how the messianic line continues. Also, it's worth pointing out that after the fact, nobody takes a negative view of Tamar in this story. That's true, and I, I think it's stories like this that highlight our need, our desperate need for a saviour. Yeah, that's right, and they also teach us about how women ought to be valued and treated in society. We've been talking a lot in this podcast about how God chooses people not on their merit, but on his own merit. And nowhere is this more abundantly clear than the story of Judah. He's not a good guy. And this story from Genesis 38 is something that I mentioned in my book, Answers the Giant Questions, where I discuss the meaning of the names of each person and the way that the story provides a type that is followed in the story of the Watchers in First Enoch. So if you haven't heard that before, definitely check the book out. I won't go into it here because we haven't got the time, but I will tease our audience a little bit with this. The story of the Watchers did not drop out of thin air. It's got some very deep biblical roots and not just from Genesis 6. Mm, intriguing. And there you go again, wetting our appetites with your cryptic clues. I can't help myself, mate. This is what I do. I like getting people interested enough to check it out for themselves. But the point of going into all of this is to show that this series of unfortunate events begins with somewhat of an almost formulaic expression, which is very easy to miss if you're not looking for it. Actually, there are three of these in this story, but just one of them will be our focus for today because it's relevant to our Genesis 3 narrative. So what are these three expressions then, and how do they work exactly? Okay, so we had Judah who went down from his brothers. That's negative. You go up to good places, holy places, sacred sites. You go down to bad places, evil places, vulgar or profane places. It doesn't matter if it's elevated or not. This is cosmic geography. Judah goes down, so that's bad. Then Judah turned aside. Again, that's negative. God's people are supposed to walk in righteousness along a straight path, following the master's voice, not turning to the right or the left. So if you turn aside, you're up to no good. You're going astray. You're following your own desires instead of the leading of the good shepherd. That's bad. But these two hints are not enough. The author's really going to drive the point home now. Let's have a closer look at verse 2 in Genesis 38. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Now, before I go into exploring the verse itself, let's have a look at the woman involved here. The English grammar is awkward, but if we read the whole story, we'll understand clearly that it's not the woman who is named Shua. That's the name of her father. Here in this story, the name is, of course, functional, and we're meant to understand that this name of the father means wealth or luxury or opulence, and that tells us that Judah had something in mind connected to richness. He saw this woman as an indulgence. She was something he desired to partake of. There's clearly a sexual aspect to this story because it is about sexual relations and bearing children. But we can't let that distract us from the fact that the name is intentional, the connotations are deliberate, and we're being told that Judah had an appetite that this woman satisfied. She becomes in the story almost like something to eat. So Judah sees her and he takes her and then he indulges. And the story which this author is already setting up as a tragedy begins to unfold. 
We're going to have a look at another example. So just hold that thought because we'll come back to all these stories at the end. Next, we're going to skip over to the book of Joshua, chapter 7, which is about the defeat of Israel as they attempted to take the city of Ai. In this story, Israel is defeated in only their second battle in the land of Canaan following the Exodus. Joshua is determined to find out what was the cause of their defeat since they had the promise of God that he was going to bring them victory. Joshua naturally assumes that the people have displeased God somehow and he has to get to the bottom of the matter. Through a process of elimination, you remember earlier we talked about how there was good divination and bad divination, and in this instance it's okay. Joshua confronts a young man named Achan and demands that he explain himself. Achan begins his story like this. I'm reading from Joshua 7 verses 20 to 21. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them, and took them, and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So again, we have a story of a massive disaster for the people of God. This time we've already had the disaster, and now we're getting the explanation, so the beginning of the story is coming out at the end. And just like the previous example, we have somebody who sees some desirable thing and takes it. Just like last time, it's some extravagant luxury that's not fitting for him to possess, much less steal. And this time, the language of indulgence begins to show something of the nature of eating. And that might be difficult to see at first because we're talking about things that you can't eat buried in the ground. But in Hebrew idiom, to make a hole in the ground is to make an opening or a mouth. That exact expression isn't used here, but you can understand how it wouldn't be far from the listener's mind. These things that he coveted are less important than the fact that he coveted. The verbs are always the primary focus from which we derive meaning. So this coveting has connections to the desire to consume and to indulge. It's the same terminology that we find in Genesis 3. Notice also the total lack of any sexual references here. Now let's have a look at another example. This time we're in 2 Samuel and chapter 11, which is the terrible story of King David and Bathsheba. Just after I thought we were getting some PG content after that first uh, pretty wild story, and now you bring this up? Come on, <laughs> think about the children. Yeah, yeah. Read your Bibles, kids. Make sure you ask your parents lots, lots of questions about it. Then ask questions about the answers they give you. The more awkward they look, the more questions you should ask. <laughs> okay, reading from uh, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Um, in case you're not sure what that means, uh, she was uh, on her period. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Mm, very ominous. Now, we all know how the story goes. David is consumed by his desire for Bathsheba. So he makes sure that her husband Uriah gets killed in battle. And then he takes her for his own wife. If you want to get really in-depth on this story, I would recommend that you check out the Faith and Other Oddities podcast with Emily and Nathan because they get into this in great detail over a series of several episodes of their podcast. What I want you to see here is that, once again, 
We have somebody who sees something that they shouldn't have and who takes it anyway. Disaster ensues and the rest is history. Possession is uh, nine-tenths of the law, as they say. That's right. So no doubt you picked up on the pattern by now, and it shouldn't take much explaining, but there's a crucial detail that really needs to be understood. In the story about Judah, we saw that the object of his desire was the daughter of a Canaanite man. In the story about Achan, it was a garment from Babylon and the spoils of war. And in the case of King David, the coveted thing was the wife of a Hittite man. Now, this is not about sex, as we noticed in Aiken's story, and it's not about foreign women or items that belong to foreigners. In each situation, our protagonist is not in the place where they're supposed to be. In every case, the thing that they desire is not right for them to have. Each situation is connected to something that is either sacred or profane, but either way, it is forbidden. And every time, we're talking about some kind of unnecessary indulgence that only leads to desolation once it has been taken. Judah's sons all die. Achan and all his house were destroyed. And David's son by Bathsheba also died shortly after birth. So by now you must understand what's taking place here in Genesis 3. And we're going to see it again when we get into Genesis 6. But that will be a discussion for another time. So let's return to our text. Genesis 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So this verse begins with a woman seeing all these reasons why she needed that fruit, which sort of results in her obviously ultimately taking it. But what's her thinking? What's her rationale? And can we learn more about why this fruit was so appealing to her? Yeah, but before we do that, I want to remind our listeners that in this story, Full of symbolic imagery, we can often be tempted to push the metaphors beyond the intended limits of the story. We need to be careful not to overanalyze it. With that in mind, we should stick to the understanding that we've built up over the course of our reading of the first two chapters of Genesis in order to remain consistent with the intent of the author. Initially, we read in Genesis 1 that the trees and plants were to provide food for humans. So it's no surprise that in this story, a crucial element of the plot is the food itself, the fruit of the tree. And we also talked about the trees in the garden as being representative of divine entities that dwell in the garden and form the divine counsel of God. According to this reading, the fruits of the trees correlate to the wisdom of these divine beings, which God permits the humans to partake of, with one limitation. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil stood in the centre of the garden alongside the tree of life. According to biblical idiom, the knowledge of good and evil is the wisdom to sit in a position of authority and make judgments or perhaps pronounce destinies. So if that tree does indeed represent a divine being, then we're talking about someone of immense power and wisdom and very high authority under God. The fruit of this tree would be incredibly appealing. Here we have a divine being prepared to dispense the power and wisdom required to be able to determine one's own destiny and therefore to reject the representation of God for something made in one's own image, becoming a self-sufficient being without obligations, allegiances, loyalties or responsibilities and a lot of power. Because the people in the garden function as authorities over the people on the outside, and the people on the outside are not in with the powers that be except through Adam and Eve. So there's opportunity then for the abuse of power. Yeah, definitely. Partaking of the fruit of this tree represented at least an act of mistrust or perhaps disloyalty toward the Lord God in that it demonstrated not just 
disobedience, but a desire to act according to one's own will and create one's own destiny. At worst, gaining the ability to determine things according to one's own will could result in tyranny and the disconnection of the entire human race from God. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. We should be careful before we assume that this means we must be talking about a literal fruit that you'd put in your mouth and digest, because what the text is telling us is that what the tree produced was able to be taken in by the humans. It doesn't mean that this was necessarily a physical fruit that would satisfy the tummy rumbles. Literally, the produce of the tree was suitable to consume. You can see how that would apply to a concept like wisdom. If you can grasp how it is of benefit, then that's information that you can digest. This fruit was also a delight to her eyes. That phrase is a little misleading, perhaps, because something that is a delight to your eyes might be something pretty like a sunset. And if we're talking about the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, can we even say what it looks like? It seems fairly apparent to me that in this context of the gaining of wisdom, we can't really apply the visual sense of appreciating beauty the way that this English translation describes it. It turns out that the word translated as delight is really more like desire or lust, and the eye can be used metaphorically to refer to the mind as well. Again, in the context that we're presented with, I think it's safe to say that we're not talking about a good-looking fruit hanging on a tree, but instead we're talking about a form of wisdom that was intensely desirable. So again, we're getting these connotations of desire and self-interest that I was talking about earlier. And now we shift our attention to the tree, because the text tells us, if we read closely, that it was the tree that was to be desired to make one wise. So what does this mean then? Because isn't this supposed to be about the fruit? Well, the fruit comes from the tree. And if you want to get the fruit, you have to keep coming back to the tree. That's the same as the situation we saw earlier with the tree of life. When we talked about that last season, you've got to keep coming back to it. You've got to hang around near it to make sure that you continually have access to it. And that's how you get the benefit from that tree. And once again, this is not about trees. We're talking about divine beings here. So what the woman is realizing is that if she wants to have continued access to this wisdom, then she needs to orient herself around this tree. That amounts to a decision of loyalty towards this one divine being that God created, that God put in place, that God gave explicit instructions about, and yet the tree of life was right there the whole time. Now, there's a very subtle wordplay going on here that I've never heard anybody talk about before, but it deserves our attention. The Hebrew word translated as wise in that instance is sakal, which refers to a similar kind of wisdom to that which we talked about before with the craftiness of the serpent. We get these ideas of prudence and being circumspect. So we get a bit of an idea that the kind of wisdom offered by this tree has some similarity to that which the serpent was attributed with. But why not use a word more directly related to the one that described the serpent? I think that it's because another word for that same kind of wisdom can also remind the hearers of the spoken word that there is a potential consequence to obtaining this wisdom outside of God's will. Remember what we were talking about a moment ago with the results of the people in these stories seeing something they shouldn't have and taking it anyway. So we had sakal as a kind of wisdom that was desirable, but we can actually read that word differently from the same root, and we can read it as shakol, which means to be childless or barren or desolate. And that is obviously not what the woman wanted, but perhaps it is what the serpent wanted. Again, I've never heard anyone pick up on that, but as the first audience of Scripture would have heard the Scriptures read to them, you've got to wonder if the connotation was enough on its own to convey something of the sinister nature of the serpent's plan, or perhaps a foreboding hint 
of the judgment to come. That's uh, amazing. And now that I think of it, it's, it's pretty kind of spooky too, really. Yeah, the, the woman's seen all these things. Well, perhaps she didn't see all of it because I'm sure that if she thought the serpent had intended to make her childless, she would have dropped that thing like a hot potato. But she's seen enough to make up her mind and she decides that she wants this fruit. Again, the fruit here is not limited to ideas of physical fruit. It's more like that which proceeds from the tree. And she's taken some, enjoyed it, and shared it with her husband. Now, I've mentioned this before, and for those who came in late, this is why you can't read this encounter as a sexual exchange. If she's having sex with the servant or the tree or however you want to read that, how can she take some of that and share it with her husband? That problem goes away pretty quickly when you stick with the context that we've already established, which works very well with the metaphors and imagery that are in play here. Now, we've seen how this literary device plays out again and again in Scripture, and we went through some examples earlier of the whole see, take, eat motif. But the way that it's laid out here is very much a template for subsequent occasions where it gets brought out in various narratives. And as I mentioned before, we're going to hit this again in Genesis 6, which I'm sure you're all looking forward to. Big things are coming. They are indeed. Was that a pun, by the way? I know you're not averse to using those. Uh, but with that in mind, let's move on to our giant answer segment and tackle some Q&A. Right, yeah, it was indeed. And that, my friend, is how you do a segue. Flawless execution. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. So what have we got this week? We have a anonymously submitted question asking about the significance of the giants in the book of Judith, chapter 16, verse 7. And uh, that book doesn't seem to be about giants at all. So how are they relevant? Oh, wow, that's a good one. Okay, well, first I think we'll read the passage in question, then we'll talk about the book itself, and then we'll broaden the context until we find out how this works. All right, so here's the quote. This is the book of Judith. Chapter 16, verse 7. For the mighty one did not fall by the young men, neither did the sons of the titans smite him, nor high giants set upon him. But Judith, the daughter of Merari, weakened him with the beauty of her countenance. Now, the book of Judith is a deuterocanonical book, which you find in the Septuagint and in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Bible in the Old Testament, but not in the Hebrew canon. And therefore, it is assigned by Protestants to the Apocrypha. Just to clarify with the Apocrypha, uh, the Apocrypha are books that, according to the church, were not intended for public reading in liturgical services. The word Apocrypha does not mean occult knowledge or forbidden books or any of those other things you might have heard. It's really best understood as books that are to be read privately. That's the understanding that's been passed down through Christian tradition, and it's important to remember that even the Reformers were not opposed to the reading of these books. They just saw them as not having a place in a divine liturgy setting. Okay, So you've got books that do get read publicly in, in church as part of the ordinary proceedings of the liturgy throughout the year, and then you have other books that the church values but does not use in these public readings that's why they're called um private books books that are to be read privately so yeah it doesn't mean that you know they're 
they're um, forbidden or evil or, you know, they're only for occultists and weirdos. All right, so, yeah, there's nothing wrong with these, reading these books. You just need to remember not to hold them as having the same authority that we hold the inspired word of God in the biblical canon. And uh, even then, that may vary depending on your faith tradition. Some will say that they are inspired. Anyway, uh, this book dates to the Second Temple period, and it's pre-Christian. Most scholars will place it in the Hasmonean era, although the narrative setting that the book describes places it in the exilic period. We don't have evidence that the story actually did play out during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, as is described in the story. So opinions are divided over whether the story is entirely fabricated or if it was written in the Hasmonean period and the author has chosen to replace names and locations with those fitting the exilic period for storytelling purposes. It's the story of a Jewish heroine named Judith, which is, of course, the feminine form of Judah who, long story short, uses her charms to get herself in the bedroom of the Assyrian military commander right before the Assyrians and their allies under Nebuchadnezzar are about to invade and destroy Judea. Almost like her predecessor, Jael, Judith kills the commander in his sleep, although Judith maintains her sexual purity, whereupon she relieves him swiftly of his head. When the invaders discover what's happened, they take flight and the Jews get the victory. Okay, so pretty interesting story. But what has that got to do with the giants, though? They were all dead by then, right? There's no giants in the Bible after King David's time. Yeah, yeah, that's a good observation, and you are 100% correct. This is a long time after the giants, whether we're talking about the context of writing or the context of the narrative. The giants come into the picture because of something that Judith says when the battle is over. The verse that we read just now comes from a song that Judith sings at the end of the story. So let's hear it again with a bit more context. This is the first half of chapter 16. It's Judith's song. Then Judith began to sing this thanksgiving in all Israel, and all the people sang after her this song of praise. And Judith said, Begin unto my God with timbrels, sing unto my Lord with cymbals, tune unto him a new psalm, Exalt him and call upon his name, for God breaketh the battles. For among the camps, in the midst of the people, he hath delivered me out of the hands of them that persecuted me. Ashur came out of the mountains from the north. He came with ten thousands of his army, the multitude whereof stopped the torrents, and their horsemen have covered the hills. He bragged that he would burn up my borders and kill my young men with the sword, and dash the sucking children against the ground, and make mine infants as a prey, and my virgins as a spoil. But the Almighty Lord hath disappointed them by the hand of a woman. For the Mighty One did not fall by the young men, neither did the sons of the Titans smite him, nor high giants set upon him, but Judith, the daughter of Merari, weakened him with the beauty of her countenance. For she put off the garment of her widowhood for the exaltation of those who were oppressed in Israel, and anointed her face with ointment, and bound her hair in a tie, and took a linen garment to deceive him. Her sandals ravished his eyes, her beauty took his mind prisoner, and the falchion, I think that's a name for a type of sword, or perhaps a sickle, passed through his neck. The Persians quaked at her boldness, and the Medes were daunted at her hardiness. Then my afflicted shouted for joy, and my weak ones cried aloud, but they were astonished. These lifted up their voices, but they were overthrown. The sons of the damsels have pierced them through and wounded them as fugitives' children. 
they perished by the battle of the Lord. I will sing unto the Lord a new song. O Lord, thou art great and glorious, wonderful in strength and invincible. Let all creatures serve thee, for thou spakest and they were made. Thou didst send forth thy spirit, and it created them. And there is none that can resist thy voice. For the mountains shall be moved from their foundations with the waters. The rocks shall melt as wax at thy presence. Yet thou art merciful to them that fear thee. For all sacrifice is too little for a sweet savour unto thee, and all the fat is not sufficient for thy burnt offering. But he that feareth the Lord is great at all times. Woe to the nations that rise up against my kindred. The Lord Almighty will take vengeance of them in the day of judgment, in putting fire and worms in their flesh, and they shall feel them and weep forever. I love a song with a happy ending. Okay, so that was our reading from Judith chapter 16. And if you've read my book, Answers to Giant Questions, or indeed if you've been following the scholars who talk about this kind of thing, you should have noticed a couple of things early in that piece. Firstly, we have the reference to Ashur, also referred to in the third person singular pronoun. This is not the nation of Assyria, and it's not the king of Assyria, it is the god of Assyria. And I've talked about this god that the Bible calls the Assyrian, who turns up in a number of places throughout the Hebrew Bible, including Genesis 10, Micah chapter 5, Ezekiel 31, Isaiah 14, and others. As it turns out, he was present in the Garden of Eden, according to Ezekiel. Hmm, so do you think this guy was Satan? Was he the, the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Hmm, well, it's hard to say with certainty because there's a lot that we don't know. It is possible. Maybe Ashur is a different entity or he might be known by other names. This guy goes on to become the patron deity of Assyria. You'll notice in our reading that he comes from the north to attack Israel. That's not just basic geography. It is also cosmic geography because this is the way that the people of God talked about the cosmic enemies of God. They live in the north and they attack from the north. The north is the bad place. That's where you find the mountains of the pagan gods, such as Mount Hermon and Mount Zaphon. And again, if you've been reading my book, you'll know that there's a subtle connection between this god known as the Assyrian and the origin of the Rephaim. That brings us into the territory of the post-flood giants. So Judith shows an awareness of this connection when she sings this song, which not only praises Yahweh, the God of Israel, but also taunts the Assyrian god by saying that the God of Israel did not need armies or the Nephilim or the Rephaim to defeat Assyria, but instead he defeated them by the hand of a widowed woman. Now, as far as we know, there's no evidence that there were any giants in the time of Judith, and the text is not making that claim, so we can't really read too much into the text. Basically, it's a bit of smack talk coming from Judith, and she's essentially saying to the Assyrian god that even though he might have had massive armies, and in times past even armies of giants at his disposal, he's no match for a single, faithful, believing woman. And I believe that that is still true even today. Oh yeah, some of the greatest heroes in the history of Israel were women. Yeah, that's one thing that makes the Bible stand out from so many other ancient religious texts. Women were meant to be honoured and valued, and not just because of their looks. I'm going to stop there before I get myself in trouble, and just say thanks to our anonymous listener for sending in that question. And we look forward to answering more of your questions next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Bye-bye for now. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken at graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Read the blog and have us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the friends of the show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. You were telling a story about a plant on a crack. Right. Um, anyway, it's all very boring. But you know. The uh, extravagant donuts. That was birthday. That was birthday girl. Birthday donut. Um, birthday donut. So there was a... Cro- a box of cronuts and a box of croffles. Oh man, where are you getting cronuts from? Far away from me. From where you are? Yes, not so much me, but uh, yes. Okay, you ready? All right, let's do it. We. Ha- <laughs> do you want to do that again? Because I catch you off. Do you want to say some whatever? Hey, no, 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 that's all good. Okay. Rip it off like a band aid. And what a great describe. Yep. Man. Mm. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Wow, indeed. Yeah. Yes.